This is a Stimulus Network podcast. Hello and welcome to the Cosmic Shed. I'm Andrew and I hope that you, wherever you are, are well and happy. Because I'm recording this in the middle of the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic, uh, where a lot of us are in isolation. And of course, that means we can't gather in the shed, as we like to do, to record podcasts. But we do have a very lovely episode for you here, because I'm delighted to be able to bring you an interview with Amy Bean, the daughter of astronaut, Apollo astronaut, Alan Bean. Uh, Alan Bean, of course, has appeared on The Cosmic Shed before. You heard a clip from my interview that I did with him on the episode we did on From the Earth to the Moon. And it was a huge delight that Amy Bean agreed to talk to me here on The Cosmic Shed to talk about what it was like to be the daughter of an astronaut who walked on the moon's surface, what it was like for the families in Apollo in those days, and what she's been up to since then. We talk about Alan Bean himself, his art, uh, what he was like as a dad. We talk about some of the other astronauts and the families in the programme. And I really know that you're going to enjoy listening to Amy Bean. Before we go to that, I should say, in case you don't know, Alan Bean went up on Apollo 12. Uh, shortly after launch, his Saturn V rocket was struck by lightning. A scary moment for everybody involved. We talked to Amy about that as well. And when Alan Bean landed on the moon's surface, he turned towards the sun and, uh, unbeknownst to him, himself, fried the film in the camera that was strapped to his front. So none of the photographs that he took on the moon's surface were there when he came back to Earth. Later, having flown on Skylab, he retired from being an astronaut and became an artist. And he painted nothing but the experiences that he and the other astronauts in the programme had had on and getting to the moon. Meanwhile, back on Earth, his daughter, Amy Bean, was looking up and knowing that her dad was walking on the surface of the moon. When we moved to NASA, I was uh, six months old. And in fact, the Manned Spacecraft Center, which they called it then, hadn't been changed to the Johnson Space Center, uh, wasn't even complete. It was still being built. And uh, so I grew up uh, in the middle of the space race as NASA was growing. And uh, it was, a, it was a, an amazing childhood, an interesting childhood, a normal childhood in many ways, which I think is a good thing. Well, I, I, you say normal, and I suppose it was normal for you in a way, but it's not normal for your dad to have walked on the moon. Did it feel normal then? Does it feel normal now? It doesn't feel normal now. But at the time, uh, it did, because it was a little bit uh, like growing up um, in a very uh, isolated military base, in a way. Not that people couldn't come there, but, uh, you know, when NASA first uh, moved to Houston, outside of Houston, it was just a, a big field where cows grazed. There was a couple of pump jacks for uh, oil, oil wells. And so it was close to an area where they shrimped. Um, near the took shrimping boats off the Gulf Coast, but it was not much there. So the community had to grow up, grow up around around NASA. So everybody that moved there uh, worked for NASA or uh, was a contractor for NASA. 
And so uh, that's why I say in many ways it seemed very normal because a lot of the kids, their dads, and I say their dads because not many of the mothers worked then, you know, most of the mothers were at home. Their dads were all working for the same common goal mission that my dad was uh, to get, get man on the moon. Most of them were scientists. Most of them were engineers. Most of them were pilots. I mean, occasional few doctors in there and administrators. But they all seemed to have a very important role to play in getting us, getting us to the moon. We were felt a little bit special if your dad was an astronaut. Everybody knew your dad was riding the rocket into space. Uh, but I have to say, I remember so often growing up, you'd go over to a friend's house and uh, I would never see uh, her father. And that's because he was working just as hard as my dad was. Yeah. Are you, are you still in touch with the, the kids from that time? Are you, do you still keep in touch? Yes, a, a number of them we keep in touch. My best friend is Tracy Cernan, and her dad was Gene Cernan, uh, Apollo 17. And the reason why we became best friends is because uh, she's just a few months older than I am. And when we first moved uh, in January of 64 to Houston, we had to rent a house while our house was being built. There wasn't many houses, see, so everybody had to build a house. So we rented a small house, and it was across the street from the Cernan's. So our mothers used to push us in strollers around. And both of our mothers were from Texas and they became fast friends. They're still best friends to this day. In fact, they talk every day, Barbara Cernan, my mother, Sue Bean. They've been friends for over 50 years. We always say we're friends to the moon and back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I talk to her often. And then um, I keep up uh, Conrad's who, of course, Pete flew with my dad and then Dick Gordon. I keep up with the Conrad's and the Gordons quite a bit. And um, Pete, his oldest son, doesn't live too far from here, so I see him every few months. And so, yeah, we do, we do. A Gwen Griffin, another person, her dad was, uh, or is, Jerry Griffin, and he was the flight controller, the lead flight controller for Apollo 12, especially during the launch. You know, he was the one on during the launch when uh, they had the, the a lightning strike. And uh, so we're good friends. We're good friends. Uh, her mother was our brownie leader. We were in the same Brown group, Girl Scouts. So, uh, yeah, I see everybody, uh, you know, on and off at different events or just now through Facebook, of course, you, you can stay so much better connected. And it's it's really nice. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. Have you watched things like uh, the HBO series From the Earth to the Moon? Oh, yeah. Yes, many times. I think it's a pretty accurate uh, portrayal of the Apollo 12 crew. I just think more about that one. That's the one I would know more about. Yeah. And uh, I love the actors that that played, uh, you know, Dad, Dick, and Pete. And they were fun. And all of them had a great sense of humor. And you, of course, you've interviewed Dad, so you know he's lighthearted. And I think they did a good job portraying their friendship. You know, a lot of the guys flew together. They weren't. They were all colleagues and professional with each other, but they weren't all close friends. You know, there would be, even Apollo 11, you know, there'd be years would go by before they would talk to each other. But Pete, Dick, and Dad always maintained a close friendship. About six weeks before uh, Dick passed away, Dad went over up to, uh, let's see, I think he lived outside of San Diego or something like that, right around there in California to visit him. And um, so now they, they, the movie, I think, was pretty accurate with who they were more documentaries of course uh and the ones from last year apollo 11 uh were so good and uh, obviously those are uh accurate 
a lot of people ask me about first man and I didn't know Neil Armstrong. I was just a child, but I've talked to my mother quite a bit about it. And she thinks it's a really accurate portrayal. She said, uh, some people call he wasn't that serious. Well, he was serious and he was much more of an introverted person, an engineer, engineer at heart. And, um, so she, she thinks that's a really good portrayal of a uh, person that he was inside, quiet, uh, focused. He was a man of duty. And then my mother used to say, too, she said, you know, when they were training for the moon, she said they were gone a lot. And they their head, their mind, you know, they had to th think about that. They couldn't be that engaged to their families. Not that they didn't care, but every decision was so life and death. And there was so much they had to know him looking seeming disconnected from his family it wasn't that he did care it's just that he was carrying literally the weight of the world and the space program and in some ways the, the country yeah i thought that was good and i'm good friends with rick and mark armstrong i mean we see each other at events and um you know i think they had many of the same experiences but you know a lot of those experiences are are, are uh the personality of your father too you know neil was a quiet introverted person, like I said, an engineer, probably a man, a few words, loved to play the piano musical. That's probably how he was, you know, at home too. Mm -hmm. My dad had a great sense of humor. He wasn't an extrovert, you know, he's an introvert because he painted and everything. But we spent a lot of time at home talking or reading and just discussing life a little bit. Whereas someone like Gene Cernan, my friend, Tracy, I spent a lot of time at their house and uh, he was an extrovert really heavily. So we went out and did things. We went horseback riding. So, you know, it's like any family, you know, what, a, what is it made up of? What are the personalities? I was just going to say, actually, that um, I, you've heard the interview that I did with your dad, but you haven't, you don't know what happened before that. Okay. Um, it's, it's a story that I tell a lot of people and it seems wrong that I wouldn't tell you, right? So sure. when, when that happened, it was very, very, very early on in my podcasting days right I'm just uh -huh. your dad was going to be doing a talk in Pontefract for the space lectures okay um, and I was always um I mean I've always been a, a bit of a, a Apollo nerd you know I love it and your dad was well, this is what I always say to people I hope you don't mind that he was always uh, because I'm basically a five-year-old and so I have a favorite astronaut he was always my favorite astronaut right? uh -huh. and, and the reason being because of who he appeared to be but also because of that the artistic side of him and, and mm -hmm. doing that art, I thought it was a fascinating story so when I I emailed and asked if I could do the interview. The people who were sort of organising it replied back and said, yeah, that's okay, but you can only have one question, which, to be perfectly honest, was fine by me because I really just wanted to meet him. It was several months before, and periodically I'd get an email from the organisers saying, just be sure that you've only got one question. It was really, really, you know, important to them that I just was in one question and out. And I was like, yeah, it's absolutely fine. And then on the day... It was in a, a primary school in Pontefract, and your dad was in the library of the primary school sitting at a table, um, which is meant for primary school children, right? So he, he looked quite big at the table. And uh, I was outside the door, and there was this huge phalanx of people saying, you've only got one question, you've only got one question. I was like, no, it's fine, it's just, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not going, and anyway, I walked in and the person who took me in said, 
Um, Alan, this is Andrew. Uh, Andrew's got one question. And your dad just looked at his watch, looked at me, looked at the person and said, what time's my talk? And they said, well, it's in half an hour. And he said, well, he hasn't got one question then, has he? We've got half an hour. Have a seat. Mm-hmm. And, and right. that, yeah, I mean, that to you isn't a surprise, right? Because that's who he was. But it was such a, a lovely moment for me to to meet him and just experience what you had for your whole life. Well, thank you. And I think he he was a person that when, uh, like he was there at that event and then meeting with you, he wanted to always give all of himself if he could. And then when he went back to his studio, then he would give all of himself there to his art. But when he was out and about, he wanted to to engage and talk and relate and tell his story. And, you know, I think later in life, he he really felt the need uh, and the purpose to inspire. You know, he wanted to tell people where he had come from, which was very humble beginnings, uh, small towns in Texas, and how he had achieved his dream. You know, how had he done that? And can, how, can, you, can you learn from him so that you can take that and do that for yourself? So, because he really felt in his heart that, you know, his dream was just, everybody's was just as important as his dream. You know, everybody has their own song to play in their hearts. Those rocks have been waiting four and a half billion years for us to come grab them. I think so, huh? Let's go grab them. Here we Stand by, Intrepid. We'll be right with you. Okay. Stand by. You guys ought to be spring-loaded. Intrepid, your go for EVA. So what, what's the song in your heart? What, what, did he, what did he inspire you to do? I have never been a person that had like a particular passion. Like my, like my father wanted to fly. My daughter uh, is a veterinarian here where I live. She always wanted to be a veterinarian. I've never kind of been that person. I've had a more variety, a career variety, took some time off to, to be a full-time mom. But the one thing that he inspired me to be is just, to do what I would like to do, like I said, in my heart and, and, and be comfortable with that, no matter what other people say. You know, as he used to say, you know, you've got to sing the song in your heart because when you're gone, nobody else knows that song and can sing it. So I've done a variety of things. I was a, a naval officer out of college, went through the University of Texas in our OTC program, uh, got into information technology. They call it cybersecurity now. In my time, they didn't call it that. But so did a lot of things. I was home for a long time just with raising three children that are not now all young adults. Uh, ran a small business. You can see I've done a variety of things. Went back to school, got my MBA. But, you know, I, uh, I started to think when I turned about 52, um, I said, you know, uh, my financial responsibilities are not so much anymore. My last son was getting out of college, things like that. I said, you know, do I, do I want to stay? I was living up in the DC area. Do I want to stay in the current career that I have, or do I want to try something different? I'm only 52. Um, I could, I could, you know, I can do anything I want now, and this is the time to do it. I don't have as much responsibility. And that was, my father was a real inspiration for that thought and for that move, because at 50, he left one very successful career to start something completely different, which was, you know, nobody thought he could do that. Everybody thought that was crazy. You know, what, what what's he know about art, right? Yeah. And it's a big inspiration for me to to say, hey, you know, you can do something different. And so I came back to Houston 
we started to work together a little bit on uh, marketing his art. And uh, of course, then he passed away nine months later. But still, it was a blessing that I came back for nine months. And so now, you know, and he encouraged me. He said, you know, uh, you know a lot of stories that people don't know. They, people don't know the family story. I think that, and it's an interesting story. It's emotional. It's heartwarming. You know, everybody likes the technical and, of course, the story of NASA. But, you know, what was it like for the kids and the personalities and what were people like at home? So he encouraged me to talk about that and write about that. You know, we also he also said, you know, when I'm gone, you have to, you know, tell the story of my art and uh, art of another world. And I started doing that. And so that's my dream now. That's my dream now to tell some of those untold family stories uh, like I said, heartwarming, emotional stories of, of the race to the moon, the community. Tell what I learned as a moonwalker's daughter, you know, some of that wisdom, you know, dreams and goals. And it's been great. I love it. Oh, I love it. Yeah, yeah. Are you, uh, it's a, are you sort of in charge of the, the art then side of things now then? Well, I'm not. I, I'm not I wouldn't say I'm in charge. Uh, working together with my stepmother. My dad did remarry. My parents divorced in 1976 after, uh, after a Skylab number, a couple years after Skylab. Uh, but, um, you know, I am the family matriarch at this point. And so I'm sure that that, uh, eventually, uh, you know, my stepmother and I work together, but you yeah. know, that'll probably fall on me at some point alone. If there's an art gallery where people can go and see it? No, most of dad's paintings were uh, commission-based. Some he would paint and they would people would come buy them. So they're mostly in private collector's hands. Uh, occasionally they'll come on the secondary market. I'll see him at an auction house or something. And usually when that happens, another private collector will purchase them. There are some in the family, uh, but most in the in a private hands. I was actually just at the um, Fort Worth Museum of Science and History earlier this week. And dad was from Fort Worth, Texas, and I was spoke there. And they have a painting that somebody donated, an early one, uh, called Headed for the Last Parking Lot. It was painted in 1982, really just the year after he left NASA. So it was one of his earlier ones. But I think that over time, uh, you know, things will will make their way to museums or uh, exhibits. And, um, you know, hopefully one day we'll have uh, an exhibit. It would be nice to have kind of a combined art exhibit with the space artifacts too. you know, talk about the science and because you can't have one without the other. You know, they're so intertwined. That sounds amazing. I'm going to save up. Uh, to get the flight out to come and see that because it won't it, it won't be in Bristol. Right? I'll send you an invitation when that happens. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, yeah, no, because I've got the book. Um, he he signed the book for me, which is a beautiful thing, and I very often take it down and, and have a look through. Um, mm -hmm. And I think I would recommend anybody who's listening to try and get hold of the book because um, I don't know. Maybe some of our listeners are wealthy enough to, to get their hands on one of the paintings, but the book does give you a really beautiful, uh, as he moves from sort of very early paintings through to as his style develops, it's really, really fascinating from an art point of view, but also from a Apollo nerd's point of view, it's really a beautiful thing. He was always creative even when I was growing up. Uh, in fact, when my parents first got married, they couldn't afford furniture. And he went and bought some mahogany from the Philippines and uh, built them 
their furniture in their house, like a headboard and a dresser and uh, an end table, and even sewed the curtains. Uh, he was just always liked to do things with his hands. And so when he became an artist and started painting, and he's really started painting after he got back from Apollo more and then picked it up after Skylab when he had more time. Yeah. Uh, that was never a surprise because he was always a creative person. Because he said to me that he didn't, he, he sort of had, it wasn't as strong as a regret, but he sort of wished that he'd drawn something on the moon when he was there. He just done a little sketch or something there. But did he talk to you about what he did do in the quiet moments on the moon? He did tell me he had a few moments to rest and kind of ponder where he was. And he didn't want to overthink it too much because he thought, oh, my God, I'm 234,000 miles from Earth. Everybody I know is on that, you know, that blue and white planet I can see in the distance. It seems shocking. Um, but he just said he just thought, you know, this is this has been a dream come true. And and, and, and I've worked hard for this and I'm just going to enjoy every moment. And he never stopped planning and uh, thinking about his next task. So I think he had a few moments where he could ponder this, um, the, the amazement, I'm exploring this as a miracle, this is my dream, but mostly he's like, okay, I wanna make sure I do what I'm supposed to do on my next EVA. And so he would probably be thinking about that. And that was just who he was. And those were the kind of people they had to send to the moon, not people that get in their head and think too much, people that were test pilots and thought, what do I have to do to do my job right and do it correctly and safely and uh, to get, get, get our job done, what the American people are expecting us to do. My dad was a man of duty, very much a man of duty. Um, never, he would have gone to Vietnam, I'm sure, and flown if he hadn't have been selected for the space program. He never wanted to go, never wanted to fight, but he would have, because that was his job and his duty. And that's what he would have been thinking about. What is my job and duty when I'm on the moon. One day they'll send the poets, one day they'll send the artists, but I think they're still in the mode of having to send the scientists and the test pilots. Yeah. Well, they did send an artist, right? Right. That crater right where it's supposed to be. You're beautiful. 10%, 257 feet coming down at five. 240 coming down at five. Hey, you're really maneuvering around. Yeah. Come on down, hey. Okay. 10% fuel, 200 feet, coming down at three. You need to come on down, okay? 190 feet, come on down, 180 feet. 9%, you're looking good. Gonna get some dust before long. 130 feet, 124 feet, Pete. 120 feet, coming down at six. You got 9%, 8%, you're looking okay. 96 feet, coming down at six. Slow down the descent rate. 80 feet, 80 feet, coming down at four, you're looking good. 70 feet, looking real good. 63 feet, 60 feet, coming down at three. 50 feet, coming down. Watch for the dust. Now, 46, low level. 42 feet, coming down at three. Coming down at two, okay. Start the clock. 42 feet, coming down at two. 40, coming down at two. Looking good, watch for that. 31, 32, 30 feet. Coming down at two feet, you got plenty of gas, plenty of gas, dude. Hang in there. 30 seconds. feet, coming down at two. He's got it made. Come on in there. 24 feet. Contact light. Roger, copy contact. Pro. Pro. Yeah, pro. 
Okay. Engine room off. Okay. All cycling found. You got your engine command override off. Yep. Okay, doke. All cycle main shut off valve. Okay. Bus seat closed. You get both brakes closed, Dave. The brakes are closed. Good landing. P. Outstanding, man. After arm on. Beautiful. Yeah, it would have painted a sketch on the moon, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that he was thinking about what he was doing, but all of that, everything that that is, is what that mission was, is is now in the painting. You're right. Sometimes the paintings are about the person. Maybe it's the astronaut. Sometimes it's about the mission, the scientific mission. Sometimes it's just about the wonder of exploration. You know, he'll paint a painting and tell the story of of the, the feelings. Sometimes it's about the uh, just the miracle that it all was and that the people. And so there's so many things that he tries to relate in his art. He had a book where he would write down uh, ideas and he had unlimited ideas. He was always an unlimited idea guy. He said, you know, I, I know I'll never be able to paint all these, but uh, I'll just keep plugging along. He's had a lot of stories to tell. Uh, are there artists in the family still? Anybody else taking it up? No, no. Uh, my brother uh, passed away not too long ago. Uh, he was a creative person, but not a not a painter. You know, there isn't any other artists. Isn't that funny? I try, was trying, as we were just talking, I was trying to think, do I have any cousins? Mm -hmm. um, no, no, he was unique, unique in the Bean family in that way. I'd say the Beans are more um, self-disciplined people, uh, hardworking, but uh, salt of the earth. A lot of them, before my father, were farmers. Uh, my grandmother, his mother, was kind of somewhat of an entrepreneur. So not a lot of artistic people, more but hardworking, focused, resilient people is how I think of the Beans. But... I think, you know, creativity can be expressed in a lot of ways, you know, writing, even in just your ideas, even in business, you can get creative. So I think, well, am I a creative person? Because, you know, we all like to think of ourselves that way. They think, well, yeah, I just, I don't pick up a paintbrush, but maybe I do that with my pen or or when I'm in a meeting proposing some ideas. With your dad looking back at the, at the earth, what, what about you looking out to the moon? What's your relationship with the actual moon itself? Often when I look out at the moon, I don't. I'll, I'll, it just seems back when you look back so long ago. It seems it does seem impossible that he walked there. You know, even though I know he did. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind, and I remember. I look at it and just say, God, so far away. And I think about his pen there. You know, the story of his pen. When you become an astronaut, when you finish your training, they give you a silver pen. It's an astronaut pen. It's got a star with the rays coming down. And I can remember my dad wearing that on his lapel every day and uh, you know they didn't wear uniforms then i hardly ever saw my dad in a military uniform because they want nasa to seem like a collegiate atmosphere and they didn't want the astronauts to become too military atmosphere so he always wore just civilian clothes anyways wore that pin and so then when he went up on apollo 12 because what happens when you fly over 50 miles they give you a gold pin and so he put his silver pin in his pocket of his suit his astronaut suit his space suit and so when he stepped out onto the lunar surface, uh, you know, got his bearings a little bit, walked around, used to it, he turned uh, around and he did an underhand throw of his silver uh, astronaut pin into the crater there. But he used to say to me, whenever I look at the moon, I think about my shiny silver pin will be as shiny as it ever was, you know, no atmosphere to 
to, to destroy it or, or make it tarnished or anything. I think about it up there in that crater. And it could be there millions and millions of years, or as he said, maybe some space tourist will come find it and pick it up. But so that's what I think about. You know, that's what dad told me that. And I said, well, that's a good thought. That's kind of a personal piece of him up there. And that meant so much to him, uh, that pen and earning that. So that's what I think about when I think about the moon. But, you know, when I think about it a lot, I, I also think about our family in the perspective growing up and, you know, dad would fly off T-38s on Monday, they'd go to the Cape or they'd go up to Long Island, New York, where they're building a limb. And then he'd usually come back on Friday afternoons. And I remember he would call my mother and uh, he'd, maybe he was at the Cape and he'd say, Sue, you know, I'm leaving the Cape now. And then about, oh, maybe an hour and a half to two hours later, he would sometimes dip his wings over our house. And then my mom get us in the car and go pick him up at, at the Ellington Air Force Base. You know, sometimes we pick him up. So I think a lot about what our life was like during that time. And my, uh, my dad, like I said, was gone a lot. I mean, he was there, but uh, my grandparents were at our house a lot because they had to help my mother. You know, somebody would take care of the house. You know, you don't think about that, but there's always somebody supporting you, somebody emotionally and then taking care of just the jobs at home. But the feeling that when that crater was made, it just threw out a big blob of dirt just for landing. Yeah, I don't think he ever got too big of an ego. I mean, that astronauts have a certain amount of ego. You know, you have to, to do what you do. But uh, I don't think he ever became a, like he had felt he was a super famous celebrity and everything. Day to day, he lived a very simple life. Yeah, it really struck me when I met your dad that the, he was so sort of incredible. It was just part of him that he was just one of the people who were part of this huge number of people who'd made this happen. He just happened to be one of the astronauts, but there were all these other people involved. And the way that I'd always sort of been, or the Apollo missions had been represented to me at that point were about these, um, I don't want to take anything away from what they did, but that's not what I'm saying, but the, 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 there were these superheroes who went to the moon with actually there were these brilliant people who went to them, yes, but then there yes. were these 400,000 other people who, who helped them get there. Yeah, everybody yeah. had their part. There's no doubt about it. And, and a lot smarter people didn't actually ride the rockets and walk on the lunar surface. I mean, those people were making the calculations over at MIT, you know, developed the navigation systems or the rocketry. But the, the test pilots that flew to the moon, they I guess they got a lot of the glory. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was, you know, dad had had, I wouldn't say he'd had a lot of failures in his life. I wouldn't say that, but his path wasn't always easy. So I think that kept him grounded. A lot of them, of course, didn't come from a, a fancy education or uh, upper income, but, you know, he had had some stalls in his career. You know, he was the last one guy in his group to fly. And I, he thought he wouldn't, wasn't going to fly Apollo when Pete then picked him to take C.C. Williams place as a lunar module pilot. So he said he just, you know, he knew what it was like to be down and then to bring it, you know, come back up. And he never forgot that. So I think that kept him, like I said, grounded and, 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 and keeping it real. And, you know, different things just happen in your life too, not even connected to the career that, that make you, uh, you know, make you not be so full of yourself. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, we've all <laughs> had our ups and downs, you know. I've spoken to quite a few scientists who have, who have had their instrumentation that they've worked on for decades put on a rocket and the, the feeling on um, launch day of putting something that you've worked on for a long time on a rocket is excitement but also fear right you were quite uh... you were quite young Let's tell me what it was uh, that was going through your mind as that rocket was going up into the sky and struck by lightning twice well, I was older for the Skylab launch, you know, when he launched to go into Skylab, I was 10. So I remember that rocket launch a lot better. Uh, I never was scared. I, I never remember feeling fear. And I never remember my mother ever seeming like she was scared, crying, ever saying that she was worried about my father. And so I think she especially... Uh, was our role model. And she laid out how we were all going to be and not in a mean way, but that she, she wasn't, she had a lot of confidence in my father. She had a lot of confidence in NASA. And of course she wife of the test pilots, you know, she'd been through a lot of difficult situations. So I just remember it was a feeling of excitement when he was there. We were glad this day was here. He'd been waiting a long time. We'd been working a long time. We were surrounded by family and friends. And as a child, I think you remember the emotions. Uh, of the moment and that's what you're taking in how are people feeling you don't remember every little detail but you remember that people and so I remember my grandparents were exceptionally proud that you know my mother went to the Cape that the the night before the launch but you know my dad was in quarantine and so kids we couldn't see him but my mother they 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 let the wives break quarantine and they would give them a physical make sure they didn't have a cold or anything and so my mother went the night before dad called and said, Sue, you know, why don't you come out to the Cape? And so he took her in the lunar module simulator. He said, I wanted to show you what it would be like when we landed on the moon. And he stood in Dick's, I mean, Pete's place. And my mother stood in dad's and they started the simulator and she could see the stars that they would see when they were going down the moon and the gauges. And, and then they made the landing, you know, how it would feel. Then after that, he drove her over to the launch pad. And they had the rocket was all lit up, she said, and they were still fueling the Saturn V, you know, and um, they rode the big elevator up to the gangplank where they walk across. And the technicians were uh, were there in their white coats and hats and things, and they were getting the, this capsule ready to load the astronauts in. So she looked in, you know, where they were, and she said they told her, don't, you know, don't touch anything, but you can look in. And, you know, she came back and she said, everything's ready. And, you know, dad's going to be fine in there and they're going to take care of him and the rocket's getting ready for launch. And so she kind of prepared us. Now, you know, it was rainy. It was very rainy. And uh, she 
she said, uh, well, I asked your dad, I said, uh, is the rain a problem for the launch? And he said, no, no, don't worry. You know, airplanes fly through uh, rain all the time and NASA will be watching it and they'll have the helicopters flying and things and, you know, conditions that would not delay the launch and wind is, a, you know, more of a problem. There was no thunderstorms. So she wasn't worried about the rain. Uh, none of us were. We wished it wasn't raining for a better view, but we weren't, didn't think there was any safety concerns. And my dad said to her, and she told us this, you know, before uh, when they said their goodbyes and hugs and kisses, he said, you know, don't worry. Uh, everything will be fine. There's a backup system, safety system for everything uh, on the mission, with the exception of one thing. He said, the rocket that lights when we leave the moon. He said, but uh, that has worked 99.9% of the time. <laughs> so he, he was always doing things to make her feel better too and and then you know late he wasn't a person that would not tell the truth he would say this this is the story but he said but if something happens to me you just know i would have died doing what i loved and so um he always wrote us letters before each mission to my brother my mother and i and he was an emotional person but but we had confidence so you know in the launch it went it was a great countdown you know, really was no delays, so some very minor delay early on. You know, we didn't know that lightning had struck the rocket. You know, it was 37 seconds in, uh, but we did see the lightning, you know, come, ride the contrail down and strike the pad. And I remember that very clearly because it was dramatic. Yeah. A child remembers something dramatic. Gene Cernan was with us. You know, you always have an astronaut with you. He kind of hustled us back to the car after we had seen the lightning strikes to the pad. He had a headset like, you know, in his ear so he could hear what was going on and everything. He didn't say anything till we got back to our apartment there in Cocoa Beach. And he said, everything's fine. Uh, they had, a, you know, looked like a lightning strike or something on the capsule, but uh, they were able to, you know, get the electrical platform reset. They're now up in orbit checking out the spacecraft to see if there's going to be any problems going to the moon. So we weren't, we weren't really too scared and they didn't panic us. I have to say, the Conrads were out on the Banana River on a boat, Jane and her boys um, watching the launch. And um, I think the Armstrongs did that for the Apollo 11 launch. They maybe you could see it. And she was upset. I, I talked to her later. She said, we didn't know what happened and we didn't have anybody with us. And I could see now that we had isolated ourselves too much. I wish we'd had been with you guys in the family viewing area. We were calm. I have to say, I think it takes as much courage to be a test pilot astronaut's wife as it does to be an astronaut. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Barbara Sernan yeah. said something very famously. She says, um, you think going to the moon is hard. You should try staying home. <laughs> Absolutely. Wait, wait, so when he came back, do you remember that? Do you remember the, the moment of seeing again after he's been in space, both in Skylab and, and the Apollo mission? Oh, I definitely oh. Uh, seeing the splash down and seeing him on TV. And then every night when he came back into Houston and they went back into quarantine, they were the last crew that had to quarantine for about 10 days. He called my mother from the ship after they splashed down. And he said, uh, oh, I'm so hungry. <laughs> he said, when we get back to Houston, bring me something to eat. <laughs> my father was a super finicky eater. In fact, he lost 13 pounds on the mission to the moon. They don't like him to lose weight. In fact, they 
don't want that. They want them to keep their energy up. They want to keep their nutrition up, you know, and everything. So he lost the most weight probably because he was the most finicky eater. Anyway, so every night when he got back, we would go to the quarantine trailer. And my mother, would, we would take a homemade meal to my father. So I do remember, and, and mostly just doing that kind of stuff. Hey, you know, hey, dad, you know, how's everything? Here's your food. You know, he'd give us a smile and a kiss. And that's what I remember. We didn't like discuss the mission too much. I'm sure he did for my mother, but, but no, just, I just remember happy to see him. And, uh, it was just after Thanksgiving and, you know, as a kid, you're thinking, Oh, we're going to, you know, he said, we put the Christmas tree up when I get home and stuff like that. So Skylab, I do remember we didn't have to go into quarantine and then they flew right back to Houston and came home right away, but he was tired. And of course he'd been in space for 59 days. And so he was, uh, you know, his body had to adjust to gravity, loss of muscle mass. He hurt his back. So I remember, too, as a child that he would sleep on the floor sometimes. He could, that was his whole, the rest of his life, he, I think he somehow probably just did something where the muscles in his back got weak. And then he probably tried to do too much on earth. And so I do remember him coming back and would just get right back into being a father. He really would. And um, I think he missed that. You know, I have my father's journal from Skylab. He wasn't a, like extensive journal every night, but he'd write a couple paragraphs, sometimes about the mission, uh, about the crew, sometimes just about home. You know, he, I remember him saying once, I wish we could go home to our wives at night. Or, you know, I talked to, I talked to Amy. We used to talk to him every three days on Skylab that didn't have cell phones or anything. We'd have to wait till they came across Hawaii or something. <laughs> So every three days we'd talk to him and, 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 you know, he might in his journal say, Oh, I talked to Amy and she's so sweet and she's getting ready to go back to school. And um, so, you know, mostly just the things that a dad's supposed to do, whether he's walking on the moon or, you know, walking down the street to go to his office. Everybody thinks this about their father, I think to a certain degree, but he was a loving father and a, a you know, a kind person, supportive and encouraging and, I always think my own happiness in life, I attribute to just his attitude and, you know, being that role model and teaching me. And yeah. uh, my mother, too, she actually is of similar, similar ways. They're both Texans. My mother grew up in Dallas. My dad grew up in Fort Worth. They're both raised in the Methodist Church. Uh, dad wasn't a very religious person later in life, but mostly because he had explored religion, spirituality, and that just was something that he decided that wasn't what he believed, but he had good values. So I think they pass those on to us or try to live by them. It was a really wonderful thing for me to meet him as, as a, an introverted person myself, right? Yes, it was yes. it's really wonderful thing to meet somebody so accomplished who was also an introvert. It was, I was, you know, it was a few years ago now and it was really inspirational for me uh, just to, to meet him uh, and he he has had quite an impact on my life. That that moment of meeting him as as gave me not that I could be going to the moon, but gave me the confidence to to follow my dreams. So it's going pretty well. So I, I I hope that it means something to you. But I'm sure it happens all the time that people say things like that. Well, absolutely, it does. And uh, I know that would mean something to my father because he wanted people to you know do what they wanted to do and. Especially introverts. He related to introverts, you know. Yeah. But you're, you're kind of, I could see, you know, uh, an introvert, but yet you 
probably spend most of your time doing quiet things or uh, reading or writing or whatever, but you can be around people and extroverted when you need to be. You just probably don't draw your energy from being at a party or something like that. I'm kind of the same. I'm a more introverted person. And um, no, I, you know, many people tell me that. And actually it's amazing how many people tell me that he, he had a way with, people that really somehow impacted them when he talked to them, a sincere, uh, something, a peaceful, I don't know what it, I, I haven't been able to narrow it down. I need to label it, but something about his manner inspired people and impacted them. And they, so many people say that to me. I'm not saying he was the Dalai Lama or anything. No. I'm saying there was something uh, that he projected. Yeah. Uh, that really uh, people uh, walked away and, and never, never have forgotten that. And, and it wasn't just about him going to the moon. It wasn't a moonwalk. Oh, he walked on the moon. That wasn't it. It was something inside that he projected, an inner peace, um, a love. Uh, I, I don't know what the word is. What, do you have a word of how you would describe I, it? The, the, the word that comes to mind for me is kindness. It's a kindness that he had. It is. Along, it is. along with everything else. That that kindness really shone through, and and that's that's what hit home for me. He liked to be known as kind. He told me that I like to be known as a kind person. A lot of people would want to be known as a superstar or a brave or something like that. No, he liked to be thought of as kind, and he it was in his heart. You know, I think people know what's in your heart. It's hard to hide that. You know. Thank you so much to Amy Bean for joining me here on the Cosmic Shed podcast. What a treat that was to speak with Amy and and I hope you all enjoyed that. We'll be back soon with another episode. Maybe we'll do The Neverending Story. That's on Netflix. Why don't you all watch that and then we'll talk about that and maybe we'll try and find some science related to it. As I say, I hope you're all keeping very well and thank you for sticking with us and thank you very much for listening. The Cosmic Shed. Science fact. Science fiction. And everything in between. You called yourself a science nerd. And uh, people that are science nerds, I have found, uh, are some of, are almost, they're always nice. I hate to just categorize it that way, but you're, you're actually such curious people and sincere with just a genuine interest in the universe, people, and life. They don't ever come across as false. And um, so I have found in my dealings, interactions with people talking about space or moon or whatever, it's some of the nicest people on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, no, I, I, totally. Those are my friends you're talking about, so I'm with you. Yes. <laughs> I'm so fortunate to be amongst that group. <laughs> with them all the time. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network.